calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. It's time for the Life Writing Podcast with your hosts, authors and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tanana Reeve Du. All about creating the project of your dreams while living a balanced artist life. Be the hero or heroine of your own story. Sponsored by LifeWritingPremium.com. Get ready to write for your life. Welcome to the Life Writing Podcast, where married authors and screenwriters, Stephen Barnes and Tananarie Du, talk about writing during stressful times, breaking into Hollywood, and balancing life. Every week, we'll share more tips on how to build a better life while you create your dream projects. Even if it's only at the rate of one sentence a day. Life writing is the application of the tools of writing to life, and the tools of life to your writing. All right, here we are. We're back. We had a great 102nd episode celebration for our last podcast, but I have to tell y'all, it kind of traumatized me. I'm just going to say right at the top of the podcast, my mic somehow defaulted to the cheap camera mic. So the whole podcast last week, I sounded like I was literally phoning it in, like on the phone. And when I listened back to the recording, I was so, oh my gosh, you just, this is, this was me. It was, just, yeah, I, I'm, I'm so, we used to have in the very beginning, Steve, remember this, when we first started this podcast, thanks to the great advice from Kara Mahorn, <laughs> who was our podcast guru. She suggested someone who was our sound engineer. We used to have someone who sat, remember this? She sat yes. in on every podcast just to make sure it sounded okay. Yes. <laughs> because in those days I couldn't, easily multitask between participating and listening. And it has literally never been an issue. I think she was only in here like three or four times. And then I got her a job at Blumhouse. And now she's in a writing room. Like she's off to the races. She's gone. But we didn't need her. We, I thought, but boy, did we need her last week. Anyway, I just had to vent. I just had to get that off my chest because I was so traumatized. But I'm okay now. Well, hey, we have a great guest. Why don't we talk about first though? Let's go.
Paris, what's going on? It's this holiday season. What's going on with you, baby? Well, the holiday season is, I have to balance that with turning in this, with getting the Star Wars book done. And because of the way I'm doing it, it's still a mess, even though I've got less than three weeks to turn it in. But my my experience with that mess is that what I'm looking for will, you know, emerges from that at a reliable pace. So if I can, I need to do, I need to, to read over and make rough corrections on 75 pages a day in order to stay on track here. If I do that, then I'm fine. You know, and so what I found out yesterday, day before yesterday, I only did 30 pages and I could feel that's not enough. Mm-hmm. Yesterday, I did 70 pages before my eyes exploded on me to say, we don't want to do this anymore. But part of that was because I wasn't working on my desktop. I was working on my laptop. So the 75 pages is, I think, the pace that I that I need to, to be moving through. And I'm looking for, there are lots of different things and some of them are thematic and some of them have to do with character arcs and some of them have, there's, you know, there's deep description that is needed in, in multiple places. And then there's, there's repetition of imagery and repetition of, of conversations. You know, Mace Windu is given his St. Crispin's Day speech three times. <laughs> Wait a minute. Once, once I can have somebody else say some of that, you know, so it's, it's just, you know, cause I was working over it. So, so rapidly trying to make sure that every major thing I had in my head got down on the page so that at this point, it's a little bit like knowing the shape of a circle and there I've got dots and splotches and lines and curved lines, but the whole circle isn't there. But my unconscious mind can see a circle. You know, I can see the circle because the geometry of circles is consistent. And so if you know three points, you know what the rest of the circle is. So I had to always assume that my unconscious mind knew what it was I was trying to do. But it's it's interesting to be constantly scared and a little bit surprised by what you find because I write it so fast I don't remember what I've written. Sometimes. Oh, it's like somebody else wrote it. <laughs> yeah, sometimes it's like that. You know, and then of course I, I put, you know, nasty Jedi jokes in there and so forth that get you know to be taken out later. Uh-huh. But you better not miss any. You better not miss any. Yeah, that's jokes. right. You know. So I remember I did that working on the secret of Nim with Don Bluth production. I would put mouse orgies, you know. <laughs> oh my god. And then cut them out before I ever handed them in, I'll tell you that. You hope um, you cut it. Yeah, I hope so. That's funny. There is the unrated version of The Secret of Nim, but that's okay. not for children. I hope uh, so. everyone appreciates the candor of this gentleman yeah. who shares this podcast. Aside from that, it's, it's just balancing that with trying to get the holidays done, you know, and trying to keep our, our eyes on, you know, on finances in various ways and still hoping to be able to go to Manila if I can get things worked out in the right pace. You know, it's uh, it's complicated. So what I'm I'm hoping to do is to get enough done in the next couple of days that I can feel chill. And yeah, start really I would love you. myself feel Christmas. You I know, would that. love you to feel chill. I would love you to feel Christmas. It's unfortunate that December is always such a busy time. I, I mean, last year, I think I was on December on a deadline. We were both on deadline for the Reggie yeah. Hudlin comic project that we were working on, right? So right. And that was after I vowed. I would not have any deadlines over Christmas because there's a built-in deadline for me, which is my grading process. And right. I'm hoping to be done tomorrow. But I, I want to go back to just... Praising you for your candor. I don't know if our listeners appreciate, you know, not everybody has to get on here 
telling y'all how scared they are, calling their book a mess, all the, you know, the kinds of things that, that Steve just does naturally. And that is in the spirit of giving and just wanting everybody to understand that that we are artists just like you, or some of you aspire to be, or or at least you appreciate artists. So yeah, we get scared. We get nervous. Real quickly, we had a very, very good meeting yesterday with the executive of the studio that has optioned one of my, well, a book series of mine, I'll call it, <laughs> that we're working on a pilot for. And there's a director attached, but I love the idea in retrospect that the director didn't want to be president at that notes meeting. I mean, she had already said her piece. She had sent us some very minor notes. We're now focused on just trimming, which is the easy part. We don't have to come up with new surprises and new twists. And it's just, let's get it back down to 60 or 65 pages. And I and the fact that she opted not to attend the meeting to me says, y'all got this, you know? And, and I know for, for a fact from talking to her that she is not interested in writing scripts. She was so glad, even though she is a writer. She only writes or she to because she needed to write to have projects to direct. But if somebody else is willing to do the writing, hey. So I, I will tell you the honest truth. I think that the average director is functioning at a higher level than the average writer because sure. they not only have to understand story, but they have to understand people and logistics and talking to producers. So that's more stuff for their brains to hold. So I, there are a lot of directors who are fine writers. They can really do it. They really understand that. When you, I'm really glad that we've got one who understands that part of the process. But I had a question for you. Mm. Many, many years ago, 10 years ago, longer, you know, when, when this is the 10th anniversary of Danger Word, isn't it? Yes. Okay. So when we did Danger Word, I told you that part of what I wanted from that was for you to have the experience of seeing the connection between the words you write on the page and what comes out on the screen, that there is a mental muscle that that is not conceptual, yeah, we it's made a hallucination. Yes. You have to actually do it and see it before you get it. So I wanted to ask you because you've been doing tremendous work on this script and you've had to do more of it than I'm comfortable with by yourself because I'm working on something else at the same time. What are the lessons that you think you learned? Was Danger Word actually as useful as I thought it was going to be? Watershed, and first of all, audience, for those of you who don't know, Danger Word is a short film directed by Lucina Fisher that is on YouTube at dangerwordfilm.com and stars Frankie Faison and Susha Scott. So yes, to answer your question, tremendously helpful. I, I have photographs that remind me because like childbirth, sometimes you forget like the pain and only remember the good parts. It was a, it was one, it was like all sets from what I can gather half oh my god i can't believe we're doing this and half oh my god i can't believe we're doing this you know like veering between those yeah, two and then there states. were moments i can't believe we're doing this yes i know <laughs> every inflection we're doing <laughs> all the inflections okay so <laughs> that was for you that laugh was late that was for you um <laughs> It took them a second to get it, but from the everybody. moments of putting out fires in the moment, seeing the cast preparing, like the older actor coaching the younger actor, yes. seems to have nothing to do with me, just observing everything, observing the crew, the, the attention of the sound engineer who was trying to teach me so hard to be the script supervisor. 
with not much luck. But all of it was incredible. And, and also, as you say, even from the table read, I was in tears just hearing them read the dialogue. And then they sang together. I was like, oh, my God, this is so surreal. So especially in light of the fact that one of the reasons the WGA recently went on strike is because so many writers have been shut out from the set. I mean, for a while, they were, COVID was an excuse. I mean, that was why I we didn't get to go to set when they were shooting our horror noir episodes because of COVID. Almost didn't get to go to the Twilight Zone set, but, but barely got there. But it, it's just very, very difficult. It has been difficult. And, and that is one of the key elements of learning how to run a show because the writer is basically on in charge on that set. And that's a difference from television and cinema. In cinema, the director's in charge. But in a lot of series, it's the writer who goes on set and says, ah, wait, this, this, you need to, we need to fix this. We need to, you know, and, and if you don't have opportunities to learn that, you're useless. You can't be a showrunner if you haven't been on set. And, and that's holding a lot of people back from advancement. So I'm grateful every day. I didn't even realize how important it was when you talked about it at first, Steve. I thought it was like, oh, yeah, what a peak experience to be on a set. But it's way more than that. It is an essential building block. And it's it's an essential experience tool for anyone who's interested in working in. I think that I'd make a correction to what you're saying just based upon what I've observed. And that is most writers do not have power on the set. However, I can believe that it is easier for a writer to have power on television than it is in a film. I well, maybe that. it's freelancers they don't. But in yeah. terms of writers who have like gotten to the set because they're at that EP level, oh, that's do, do def- they have power. An executive producer who's already – Or already, EP or like – Also a writer. Senior story, whatever they are. Once if they I reach- was the producer on that movie or that television series – I would want that EP there all the time. Yeah. I would want to be talking about every scene, every image, every, every line of dialogue, every inflection, every every bit of subtext. The, the, the writer who can work their way up to the position where the producers, the money people, trust them is in a unique and wonderful position. Well, that's what's supposed to happen with yeah, staff writers. You start as a staff writer, and then you get promoted to a story editor, and then you get promoted. There are like all these steps. But by the time you get to the step as a writer, where they're sending you to the set, generally, they do have power in a lot of situations. I'm just, well, that's, one, that's this is another I, one of the reasons why we love Brian Fuller. Yes. Because Brian made room for us to be in the writer's room because he knew that what was coming for us next was somebody offering us executive EP, you know, position on a project that we, that we generated, that we create, which is yeah. what is about to happen. And yeah. without that experience, it would have seemed, what, what is this? We, we would have had no idea what we were stepping into. No, not at uh, all. But I think that, you know, like I've said to many people, the moment at which I knew you had gotten the thing that I was looking for, was the moment at which you came up with an original idea on the set under pressure when you were totally exhausted. <laughs> yeah, and that's what, the whole what, reason. What did Steve Muhammad say? That mastery is what you do spontaneously under pressure. So I had to put you under pressure and give you a chance to shine, and you did. It was great. It was a great experience. I'm glad we had it. And I'm also glad, more than glad, to introduce our next guest. Absolutely. I think our our guest is not only someone that we've known for many, many, many years, but I think the first poet 
that we have ever had on the Life Writing Podcast. I know. I mean, she's giving me a look like, what? That, but I think it's true. And in honor of that designation, I am going to read an excerpt from one of her poets. She's a horror speculative poet. Did you even That's know great. That? That's yeah, great. Right? It's called How to Recognize a Demon Has Become Your Friend, which is also, by the way, the title of one of her collections. Song from their open mouth makes you sleep. Upon waking, you feel empty and sad. There is a mark of ash on your chest where your heart should be. Their eyes remind you of hunger, but everything you eat has no taste. Your eyes reflect flames in the mirror. You stare at the sun, but it doesn't hurt. They ask you for the time, but you tell them when you were born. Suddenly, you can't remember your mother or father. Your other friends stop calling you. Their face faces flash as missing online. You change your status to possessed on your social network. I don't know if she could have read it better, but I wanted to read it. Anyway, our guest, those of you, some of you may know by the hints I've dropped, That's is great. Linda... Linda D. Addison, who grew up in Philadelphia, began weaving stories at an early age, the first Black recipient of the world-renowned HWA Bram Stoker Award. In fact, that's the first time that, in fact, that deserves applause just by itself, okay? And when I published my first novel in 1995, The Between, she was the only other sister there, except for my literal sister who was there with me. But she was the only other sister there, so she has been around predating me, okay, in the horror field. Good for her. She's received five awards for collections. Many of them are collaborations like The Plays of Broken Things with Alessandro Manzetti, Four Elements with Charlie Jacob, March Simon, Rain Graves. Also, I saw that she co-edited Sycorax's Daughters, which was an anthology of horror fiction and poetry by Black women. And y'all need to go run that, go get that. Kenitra Brooks, Dr. Kenitra Brooks and Susanna Morris, both of them PhDs, were her co-editors. That is an important anthology, and I'm so glad that she did it. Linda now lives in Arizona, has published over 400 poems, stories, and articles, and also, we both appear in Black Panther, the Tales of Wakanda anthology. Please welcome Linda D. Addison. Oh, boy. Welcome. Oh, boy, oh, boy. I loved hearing you read my poem, too. Oh, good, good. I'm sorry, I'm calling you T. Is that okay? Because I know. That's I mean, I won't edit it out, but generally speaking, no. <laughs> Just for you. Hey, when it's just us, call me whatever you want. Okay. But, but, but yes, I'm so glad to have you in our studio. I hope that everything you demanded was in the green room, that you had the fruit plate with the mango slice just so, you had the mineral water and the Coke Zero. I hope everything was to your liking. Yes. And only the green M&Ms. It's all perfect. <laughs> you know, I, I, kind of get why people, why performers of various kinds need extremely specific things in that space, you know, include up to and including, you know, don't, don't meet my eyes and I want green him. People go through different rituals in order to prepare themselves for action. And not everybody is as healthy as uh, what Dolly Parton seems to be, to be able to just walk in a room and be herself and everything is fine. That's pretty rare. Most of us need a little ritual. Absolutely. I mean, I have my own rituals when I'm creating, even though they're not so strict as only green M&Ms. <laughs> but, well, what are some of them? Yeah. 
Um, I like a scent, a burning scent, either incense or, or scented candles. And my cousins know that, so they always buy me lots of those at the holidays. I like music, but without words, because I'm very, I'm very keyed on words. So if I hear music with words, all of a sudden it's throwing me off the track of what else might be coming through. Um, I've heard people say that. Yeah. And sometimes when I'm writing, like depending on what it is, if I'm writing something super dark, I'll have like the Alien series going on in the background because I know all the words to that. I've watched it too many times. Just like a moving art to look at when I'm thinking in between and I see like, you know, some creature ripping somebody up. It kind of puts me in the mood. I talk about that too, Linda, because speaking of in the mood and that horror mood, I know when I first started publishing, I didn't I did not know about any other black horror writers, period. I hadn't even discovered Octavia Butler. So you were out there like by yourself. What inspired you internally to pursue an art form where you did not see yourself represented externally? I think mostly driven by what was coming through me. I mean, I could have chosen to deny it because I didn't see it reflected, or I could have just surrendered to it. And I decided that madness was to be avoided if I just did it. (laughs) So yes, there weren't, and there's still, you know, I'm still hungry for more Blacks writing poetry in, in the dark area, but it's, you know, there's so much more out there now than ever. And when I first met you, I will never forget meeting you and your sister. We were the only brown folks in the room. And yes, I was we so sure you were going to want win the Stoker because your book was incredible. So I, I still always feel like I I came in second and nobody don't know it as the first black <laughs> in the Stoker. I keep telling I me. appreciate that. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. The late, great Peter Straub gave me a look over his shoulder when they were about to call the category that made me so sure I was about to win. And because I didn't expect to win, I didn't even, I was new, you know, I, I you know, organizations are political and, and whatever. But when he turned over his shoulder to look at me, he was so full of, and he was such a dear man. I'm so sad that he's passed away. He was, he had that certainty on his face that he passed on to me. <laughs> I almost stood up, girl. No. <laughs> he was, I loved him so much. I met him and had some of the best conversations about writing, the fear of writing. I mean, he was very open with everything when, and I was really sure you were because I'm pretty sure I would have to look at my notes because I tracked this because I'm Virgo. I can't help it. That you were probably the first black on the final ballot. 
Oh, interesting. That's something I did not know. I suspect. And when I won, he stood up. Peter Straub stood up and gave me a standing ovation, almost passed out. Oh, that is so beautiful. I, you know, when I started, a lot of my readings were at black bookstores. I, I, Horror Writers Association was a revelation to me because I didn't know about that side of my family. You know, so it was like, oh, and they were super supportive. It sounds like you've had a lot of support organizationally since you started, and you also have turned into a community builder. Can you talk a little bit about how people nurtured you and also how you've tried to turn around and nurture others? Oh, I think that is everything. I mean, if you choose, again, everything is a choice, right? Because it takes a certain amount of my time, has for years, to try to lift up others, to support others, to spread this incredible light that came to me, which was way more than I my ego needed. <laughs> when I saw that, I was like, oh, maybe this is something new that I need to add to my job. <laughs> so, And that is spreading the light because I got so much of it. It's just so important to me. I mean, what I know for sure is that we are not separate. You know, we're sitting here, the three of us, we look like separate people, but we are not. We mm. are connected ultimately. I really think that two things happen when you go deep into yourself and Masters in so many different fields have alluded to this that I think that it is accurate. One is that at the core of what we are, we're love and children seeking love and seeking to connect, reconnect with the divine or that sense of peace we felt in the womb. The other is that we're not separate, as you say. We're more like mushrooms. We seem to be separate, but truth is there is a single mycelial core that connects all of us and that the history of the universe from a billionth of a second after the Big Bang has been one of interconnectedness and evolution. That this is this is our heritage, that it is illusion, it is fear that keeps us separate. This is one of the reasons why horror is so important. It allows us to deal with fear, to look at fear, to understand fear. And to the degree that fear is the thing that stops us from loving more than anything else, it could be that horror is the most important genre. It's possible. I mean, I, I don't know, but it is actually possible. No I argument think, for me. <laughs> I think it's so important. I mean, yeah. I have evolved over my life to face, and even like my book title says, make friends with my demons and my fears yes. and my, you know, my perceived weaknesses, which I don't think there is such a thing really anymore. So that's why it's so easy for me and actually so uplifting to me to mentor, to talk to people, because everyone that gets something good that I've touched is a good for me. I don't feel any different. I feel so excited when I see, you know, people taking their work higher and then even them doing the mentoring and doing the reaching out. It is just it's what beautiful. it has to be. It has to that be. Is well, I, I, I know one thing about you that helps to explain your success, and that is you're a good student. You I empty your cup. You actually listen. You actually, you're obviously always looking for ways to improve, to, 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 to grow. And that's one of the things that I have observed in masters. They're always learning, they're always doing, and they're always teaching. That's the road of mastery. And you are squarely on that road. So respect, respect. It doesn't matter whether or not you see some people who you think are further ahead than you. That doesn't matter at all. There's no place to get to. There's just being on the road. 
and helping other people upon the road. I'm deeply touched that you would say such a thing. I really am, Steve. But it's the truth of it, I mean, is outside of the word master, because that's, that's just reinterpret that but, word so that you understand what I mean by it. I do understand. Yeah. And and the thing is that that is the importance of my life. And I've learned so much from the two of you and your programs. I actually there's three programs I did. I don't want to get off off subject and, and, and anything, but I what did were they? Warrior Journey, which changed my life. Mm. Soulmate Process, which I am <laughs> deep in exercising the concept. And screen screen. Oh, you did our screenwriting class. Yes, that's yes. great. That's great. Awesome. That's great. I have a very you know, shiny book, and I have all the notes in here for all three of them. So let me ask you a question. Get sneaky. Do you see how all three of those courses are actually only saying the same thing? Can you see that? Uh, I guess so. Uh, oh, boy. Step back. If you can step back and see how all three of those courses are actually saying the exact same thing, then you'll understand what it is that we're trying to really teach. Well, I think yeah. I do. I mean, because when I do everything, I, I'm not I'm not going to summarize what you just said because I hadn't thought of it that way. But for me, uh, everything that I believe and teach and try to be is about choosing love over fear. Yes. And lessons and what I call lessons and blessings, which is a nonfiction book that I'm kind of working on, where yeah. every single thing that happens to you, whether it makes you joyful or pain, is there to help you evolve and learn something about yourself and in that way reflects in the world. What people, the mistake that people make when they hear people say things like that is saying, well, you're you're suggesting agency. It's one thing that there's a, a living being that did this. And other thing is you're telling people who've been horribly abused to to be glad that they were. That's not what you're saying at all. You or, or sometimes people take it as I cannot create without suffering. That's right. There, there are people who take the position that all art comes from suffering. No, all art Therefore, comes from intense emotion. Suffering, yeah. you know, fear and anger and pain are a set of intense emotions. But Ray Bradbury did not come from fear and pain. He came from love and joy. It is probably harder and I think more evolved as a human being to, to resolve your pains to the point that you can focus on your joys. You know, it's like you spend the first half of your life learning how to move away from pain. And the faster you do that, the faster you can start focusing on joy. And then when you've got that anchored in, you can focus on service. So, you know, that's that's the progression that I see right there. And when people are stuck in pain, talking to them about love feels like you're insane to them. Like it's like, lie. what do you mean about love? There are predators out there. There are people who hurt you. If you're, you know, nice guys finish last. If you open your heart, you'll get hurt. Those things are true if you have not taken responsibility for your own safety, which is why Dawn's work and the, the warrior within, it starts with self-protection to the point that it is safe for you to open your heart and tell the truth in your art, for instance, hint, hint. <laughs> and speaking of your art, Linda, I want to take you back to the baby creator you were back in Philly. Because I know what my origin story is in some ways as a horror writer, the same thing that helped inspire The Keeper, which was spending that night with my great-grandmother and hearing her oxygen machine and really getting that mortality was real. <laughs> Do you have a, a similar origin story or just generally, broadly speaking, what attracted you to horror? 
Well, I mean, as I said, my life is sort of a, not sort of, my life is a process. So the first 18 years of my life in Philly, we grew up very poor. My dad had a lot of issues. (laughs) And so it was a very fearful environment. It was violent. And the only place I'm sorry. It's okay. You know, it was part of the process. I appreciate it now. You know, I've I've embraced it. I've recognized the demon of it. So and and loved it now. But those first 18 years, the only safe place I had was in books and my imagination. Nothing else was safe. And I was the oldest of nine. So I was constantly trying to protect the other eight, even if that meant me taking the hits. I would be like, I would rather take the hit, physical hit, than have the younger ones. So it was a really fearful, fearful 18 years. Then I went to college and I started finding that there is safe places out in the world. And then after college, the whole process after that was me understanding I needed to return to that fear. When I first started writing, I was writing fantasy and science fiction, kind of, but it wasn't really working. Then I came to realize that I had to go back to that scared little Linda. I call her little Linda. I still call her little Linda, hiding in the dark in the closet. And I had to bring her out and I had to learn to love her again. And I had to let her know that I would protect her. And then I could write fear that the poetry and short stories just came to me, you know, and I was never more surprised than anyone that the horror community embraced it because I didn't know what I was writing was be called horror. But Mm -hmm. now I defined it as psychological horror. It is the feelings. And so that's the short version of my, my story. And part of it, as Steve has mentioned, was once I embraced all of that, saw it, loved those memories, loved little Linda, I feel pretty invulnerable if that is such a were to use in the sense of there is nothing much that someone could say to me or criticize to me that I wouldn't, for the most part, I'm not perfect, I'm human, sit back and say, oh, that's a very interesting statement. And you just told me a lot about you, not so much about me. Okay. Mm. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that. I, 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 I love your candor there. And I don't know if, if this is related or not, but you had a fearful time as an adult. I hope you don't mind me bringing up because you're the first person that I knew who got COVID. Like you got the OG, no vaccine. We don't know what's happening, COVID. And you were on the, the series that I did with, you know, with Monica, where Monica Coleman, Octavia tried to tell us and, and talked about that. The idea of breathing, which is something we talk about a lot on our show, but but you are you have kind of become one of the voices in my head because I I put myself in your position with this new disease. No one knows anything about it. All we know is that people are dying from it. I mean that part we knew, and you said that there were some points where all you could do is sit in your chair and breathe, Linda. When I tell you, when I got like small COVID, like post vaccination never really had breathing issues, but just felt so sick that I didn't feel like doing anything, even listening to a podcast. I remembered you talking about that breathing. Would you yeah. mind talking about how scary that was and how how you marshaled your resources emotionally to face that down? Absolutely. I'm 
happy to share it because it is a big point in my mind that I go back to sometimes when I feel a little bit of fear now. I think, oh, you feel a little fear now. Remember back then? So, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and by the way, in the years between my first 18 and now, I did a lot of things. You know, I went into Buddhism, uh, Tai Chi, which I still do every day, many times, breathing, which I've always done and deepened with the workshops that you and Steve have done. But what happened is that it was in June 2020. No one knew a whole lot about it. I woke up one day with all the symptoms that they knew at that time, which was only like eight or so. Now they got a host of who knows how many. Called Mm -hmm. my doctor, took my temperature. She was like, do you want to come and get tested? I couldn't go there, physically move to go there. And secondly, was terrified that I would give this to someone. I didn't want to go out of my house. So for seven days, I just sat breathing. And on the seventh day, I it was so hard to breathe like an elephant sitting on my chest. And I did have support around me. Jill Ballman, who's the artist for the cover of How to Recognize the Demon, lives a few doors down. And she would drop off stuff on a plastic bag and leave at my door. So that day, I remember sitting, looking at the mountains, thinking, I don't know that I'm going to wake up tomorrow. That's how I felt very clearly. Like, I just didn't. And then in a kind of way, like people talk about the life flashing through you, I I looked back at everything. And as I said, I know I'm not a perfect person. Most of the time, good intentioned. (laughs) And so I could, I felt like the mistakes I had made, the good things I had done, I felt very settled with my Mm -hmm. life at that point. I felt very, I don't know, just peaceful in a way, if you can think about it that way. I was scared later when I thought back on it, but I wasn't scared that day. So I I suspect that that sense of feeling complete is a gift of a healthy nervous system to a body that is under extreme challenge. That this is something that, that when you're healthy, and especially if you're healthy and young, that makes no sense. You know, so you, you fight for life every inch. But it would make sense to me that there is no purpose for fear if there is no more fighting to do. You know, I that know. that why would your brain play a trick as ugly as that on you? So you look at people and you can tell that they're people who, as they near the end, are filled with pain and fear and they're just fighting and ego and it's just it's horrible it's the worst thing imaginable and other people who are able to embrace this aspect of life as being as natural as birth and can move through that and can even teach their own families and and use their death as an example to their students you know gather them around this you watch this I'm going to show you how to do this. And I think that that life, that fiction is taking things in life that we feel powerfully about and finding ways to give people an experience of how we have experienced those things, how we have dealt with those things, how we wish we could deal with those things. And so it's as sacred an archetype as any other basic, you know, healer, warrior, you know, position, the griot, the teacher, the the, the healer in, in, in a way, because good stories actually carry us through our pain and, and damage. I yeah, they absolutely. 
explained it that way, Steve, because I hadn't thought about it. I just, as as much as I can tell you now, I remember that feeling of peace to this day. And I thought mm. how interesting it was. I was so sick, it wasn't about fear. It took me a while in writing about it later, the next year, I was in a lot of fear remembering it. And then it became less fear because I recognized how amazing it was that my body did that. Because obviously the next day I woke up. But <laughs> Right. Well, then, but then or the undead version of you did. Yeah. <laughs> real, real. I'm okay with that definition. <laughs> Unless you didn't wake up and this is all a dream. <laughs> it, well, it is all a dream. Isn't Don't it? get me started talking about Bro. realities because you know I love that. Row, so, row, row your boat. Gently so down the stream. I'm in for it. But for then the next six months, because again, there was nothing much they could do. And that day I started feeling better a little bit. Then and then for the next six months, I had just like, you know, extreme exhaustion, headaches. No, I lost a lot of weight. Yeah, if you I, had long COVID symptoms. Yeah, I did. If I got up and took a shower that day, that was all I could do. I couldn't read. I couldn't work on a computer. I mean, there was. It was like six, it was a six month meditation retreat for real. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Even my, my different experience, which was six weeks, not six months, but still six weeks was a very long time to me to realize that I had run out of places to hide. Like often if I'm going through something, I can hide with my writing. (laughs) That's, you know, my writing is always my go-to, but in illness, I did not feel like right I didn't even feel like listening to uh, a narrative podcast an informational podcast turning on my TV nothing like you said it was like a meditation just lying there you and your thoughts and it was just an interesting place to be where the writing was not helpful you know I had run out of that and and you said it took you a while to write about it when you did write about it how did you engage with that creatively well, I couldn't not remember that feeling. And I've never had that long where I couldn't write because even when I was in those first 18 years, I was journaling my fear in a way. So to face it the first time, and, and I got a feeling Steve would know something about how to explain what happened to my nervous system. The first time I wrote about it, I was shaking with fear that I didn't mm. have when it happened. To to look at it and describe it again. I don't now because it's I've been able to integrate what a blessing those six months and that one night was to me. But meditatively during those six months, I understood that my body was like working as hard as it could to keep me here. And every day I woke up those six months, I thanked it for what it was doing. Wasn't happy, but I thanked it. And so I and, and I have one of my brothers, Tyrone, I was in touch with my family a lot, but Tyrone a lot too. And he said to me early on, he said, one day you're going to wake up and you're going to feel normal, but that's not this day. Mm. December, I woke up that day and I wrote in my journal every day, day one through maybe 50 before I believed that that day was sticking <laughs> Oh, wow. Well, good for you. I'm so, I mean, that is, like you said, one of those experiences, as horrible as it is on one level, you can grow to appreciate it because knowing that you felt that feeling of peace is so important, no matter how fearful we may be later and, you know, not wanting to die and all that kicks back in. (laughs) But 
human beings know how to die, right? If we let ourselves quiet our minds, we know how to die. We've been doing it since day one. <laughs> Go and Absolutely. Steve, you did it before there, were, before there were human beings, human beings. Right. <laughs> but one of the things I wanted to touch on here is the fact that our nervous systems contain every experience we've ever had, which is why you can remember your first kiss and get turned on. You know, it's, it's, you can deliberately, and people who experience depression are often stuck remembering, it's like they have the, the, the jukebox in their mind and all the experiences of their life and all it takes to be suicidally depressed is to not know how to play the good records, is that every time you try to have a memory, all that comes up are the disappointments, the betrayals, the failures, you know, and you, you can crush yourself like that. And the way through that, or one of the things that can be taught, and, and it's important, you know, doctors and therapists and, and people to provide medication, all those things are valid things. I mean, in no way am I suggesting they are not. But in having said that, the more you can learn, you know, your emotions are created by what you focus on the way you move your body and the language that you use, that if you train yourself every day to deliberately trigger the positive emotions, if you, even if you have to make them up, you know, so a lot of us can't, don't have positive memories, but we have positive memories of movies and books and people and books dealing with analogous and metaphorical situations that represent death and change. And if the writers are telling the truth, then they're sharing their, oh, this is how I got across this. This is how I dealt with this. This is how I watched my dad deal with this. And you're actually creating pathways to positive neurology, pathways to being able to look at the pain that you're going through and finding ways to embrace the meaning that you get because the pain woke you up. The pain, you know, I, I every time you lose a friend, use that pain to wake up and be more appreciative of the friends you have left. If you do that, then you're you're going through that pain, you're using that emotion to help make you a more genuine human being. And I think that that is what an awful lot of world religions and philosophies are trying to do to get us to contextualize our lives so we can spend as much time as possible dealing with joy, despite the fact that life can be a veil of tears. You couldn't be speaking more truth, Steve. And and, and, and that's why I, I always love hearing what you and Tanana Reeve have to say about things, because one of the things I've spent my life doing and continue, as you said, I am a student forever. I'm always trying to learn something, is understanding human psychology and understanding so many things. And there are certain things I carry forever. And that is that when we have a loss, uh, my son is has gone through some losses. I've gone through some losses this year. But when we have one loss, it brings back echoes of all the losses we've had whether we're conscious or not. So if we can know that, that does help to understand that the other thing I know to be true is that change is the only thing we can depend on. So, you know, when I feel really down, I know I'm not going to feel like that forever because that's not going to last. So it's the same thing as you said, like a first kiss, you remember it, you can feel it. A first slap, you can remember it, you can feel it. And all the ones after that to understand that that is what's happening as a process. I mean, one of the things that I will say 
and it's been enough time that I can believe to say this, is that that one moment where I didn't think I was going to wake up the next day has been such a gift because I know nobody lives forever. We all know that. And I embrace that in times where I certainly feel a certain whatever kind of way I go, yeah, well, you know, this flesh ain't going to stay here forever. So that's right. You've been here before. Let's move on. This is, yeah, yeah, that's, that's great, Linda. That is really Um, great. And, and this, you know, as I think about it, this is all very appropriate. This podcast episode will drop right before Christmas. And this is the one people will be listening to through the Christmas season. And as we know, a lot of people suffer from depression around the holidays because of that very thing you're talking about, the echoing losses and the memories of what is gone and, and feeling lonely and, and whatever the feelings are. So I'm really glad we've had this conversation. Linda, I want to ask you, though, about your current work, because uh, you said you're working on a nonfiction book. You've published a whole bunch of poetry. You've edited. What are you working on now? Um, what I'm currently working on, I mean, this year has been a blessing like so many years where I've I've had 15 poems published in different wonderful, incredible, beautiful anthologies. What I'm currently working on is my second novel. <gasps> I'm moving into the novel hey, that has been okay. the biggest hey. over here. That's huge. That's the tough. Biggest. I know it's tough to write a novel longer form. Bigger so many years because I have been afraid of that forever. And let me just say, Warrior Journey, Warrior Journey. That was the biggest fear I faced at that time when I went through that workshop, Steve, because I faced so many things. I faced so many fears and demons, but the novel was a big one. And so, finished my first novel. It's sci fi, it's with an agent. I have an agent this year. Oh, nice. Amazing. Amazing. Uh, People are like, what do you wish? I don't wish for anything. I got everything. I mean, of course, I have my intentions of other things, but I'm just saying my life is so full. So I'm working on the second novel and I don't even know what my process is yet. But I'm, I did the first novel, 100,000 Words, the same way I write poetry. It's very organic. I just sit down, I light a candle and I just open up and whatever comes, comes. And so you're a pantser in that sense. Totally, which is difficult <laughs> now because working on synopsis and I'm like, okay, I'm going to do the synopsis like I would do a poem and let's hope they're interested. And then maybe when the book gets done, it might be close to interesting and, too. And it may resemble this synopsis or it may not. <laughs> I'm all good with that. I just turned into synopsis too. So believe me, I'm with you on that one. So it's just very exciting to be in this new land and, you know, trying to to manage my time has been an ongoing journey because there's so many things I do with other people. And I've had to sort of try to work on pulling myself back because the novel takes a lot more time. But that's the big excitement. I mean, you can folks can go to my site if you're on uh, social media, you know, the wonderful, incredible, beautiful. I'm looking at the pile over here on my desk of anthologies I've been in this year are just extraordinary. Really blessed. That's so great. I'm so excited for you. And especially, you know, since you've been doing this for for so long, it's just great to see you getting the recognition you deserve and the representation you deserve. (laughs) Because all I ever did 
And I was in I was interviewed by someone and in the beginning of my writing many years ago, all I wanted was to see my name in print. So the awards were astounding to me. They were like, I didn't even know what to say, what to do. So many wonderful things like this. And then now they're saying, so now that you've accomplished all that, what is it you want? And just to see my name in print. (laughs) (laughs) Name on a movie. You know, I'm in this Madness and Writers TV show that's probably going to come out next year. I'm in the first episode. That, whoever thought, that was not even on my list. Stop it. Isn't that what's great? When we talk about the path of mastery, that you're always learning, always doing, always teaching, that one of the things that happens is that you increase your amplitude. You increase your reach, you know, by going deeper into having the courage to be specific about what you're saying, revelatory of self, you touch the universal. That it is the person who is afraid to be themselves that ends up never finding an audience or taking no satisfaction in the audience that they find. That if you are being honest to yourself, at least you have that. You know, you can, at at the moment when you thought you might not wake up in the morning, I would bet you that the money that you'd earned over your life didn't even cross your mind. But the people you have loved and the truth you have spoken gave you enormous comfort. Am I accurate about that? Totally, one billion percent. So thank you. And thank you for your honesty. And like I said, there's... It, there's nothing I like more than talking to other people that are on the same path. And I'm constantly learning and I'm constantly doing, but Tanana even I also find ways to share what we have learned. How's that for a transition? That's a great one. <laughs> guys are the masters. You guys are the masters of the show. You should have a, should have a theme song for that transition. To the degree that you listen to this podcast and our conversations with our guests and think that you would like that this path feels like a good one and you would like to walk this path and see what it's like we have ways to get closer to us and you know on saturdays we have the fire dance meetings where we workshop and coach people totally free just live zooms people that's right there's zoom meetings and they're wonderful every every saturday at 12 noon pacific and you are invited just get on our mailing list at stephenbarneslist.com or tananarivelist.com And you'll get there. And if you'd like to get deeper into the program, our our we have our writing programs at lifewritingpremium.com. But the life program, and I think that that the our primary work of art is a life lived artistically, lived mm-hmm. with integrity, lived with energy and passion. And out of that, you take that person, then you teach them some writing skills, and they'll automatically become start, you know, start being a writer and they will learn how to go more deeply into this. So the primary thing is to deal with the person. You know, you are the axe that is cutting the tree. Spend your time working on that. So whether it's the relationships, and we've dealt with that, or career stuff, you know, we've dealt with with that in terms of writing, but the whole human being comes together in the fire dance tai chi class. That is, you know, I am, it's a a year-long class, body-mind, and I don't have anything better than than that class. And the the warrior journey that that uh, Linda was talking about is the is the warrior piece of the question: How shall I live with courage and integrity? And for that matter, how do I kill my illusions? Because in some ways, when you do that, that's a spiritual path. Because spirituality then would be the removal of all illusion. Remember, it's the fear and the illusion that keeps us from feeling separate from the rest of the universe. So any path 
of honesty, of kindness, of love, of increasing utility is a path that warriors and artists and parents and healers can all embrace. We're all the same person. We're just trying to we're just trying to walk this with integrity. So I would suggest go to lifewritingpremium.com uh, or firedancetaichi.com or just come to our show on Saturday and let us nurture you and you can ask anything that you want. And yeah, you get the link to the show by joining the mailing list that he mentioned earlier. So we right. are accessible. You can email us th- through the list. I mean, all kinds of stuff. The podcast is just a piece of the pyramid. That's <laughs> and right. I, just as a side note, we were talking about feelings and depression and working through. If you are listening to this podcast and you're feeling uh, uneasy or worried or scared that you might be having suicidal ideation, I just want to mention that the National Suicide Hotline is 988. It is 988. We are not a substitute for talking to counselors. So just wanted to throw that in there. But Linda, you have been an amazing guest. Is there anything else you want to tell us before we wrap how to reach you on social media? Is there something coming out we should be looking for or something that's already come out that we need to support? What what, what do you have for us? Well, first of all, I'm beyond delighted to be sitting here. You know, you two are one of my favorite people ever. I, you, people can find me at lindaaddisonwriter.com altogether. And the thing that I'm excited that I know is going to come out next year in particular is the Madness and Writers TV show. So I would ask people to go onto Instagram and, and all those places and follow us, find a site, you know, YouTube, just follow us and then you'll find out when it comes out. And believe me when I tell you, it is going to be amazing. I could list all the people in it, but you should go to the site and see it. It is not an interview show. It is going to be a beautiful, like, art film. It's just amazing. Madison writers like the town, M-A-D-I-S-O-N? No, madness, like. Oh, madness. madness of writing. <laughs> oh, madness of writing. See, I was and, all, I was really close. And writers, the untold story, but all that rest of it, just look up madness and writers and follow us. Oh yeah. my gosh. Well, I love the excitement when you talk about it. So that sounds great. Thank you too, so much to our fantastic guest, fantastic Linda D. Guest. Addison. And you all now are responsible for going out to make yourselves the hero or heroine of your own story. The hero in the adventure of your lifetime. Bye-bye, everybody. (laughs) You've been listening to the Life Writing Podcast. Join us next time for more conversations about creating the project of your dreams. For more information, go to lifewritingpremium.com and get ready to write for your life.